Hi, I'm Brandon Poe, founder of Poe Group Advisors. We are the premier accounting practice intermediary firm in the industry. You're listening to the Accountant's Flight Plan podcast, where we talk about stuff in the accounting world. Hi, I'm very excited to have Shannon Hay on our podcast this morning. And Shannon is the Vice President of Lending for Accounting and Tax Professionals nationwide at Live Oak Bank. He was recruited to launch the Accounting and Tax Vertical in 2017 after successfully launching a similar program, another top 25 SBA lender. Uh, Shannon has over two decades of banking experience. He spent the beginning part of his career in the special asset group of a niche lending division at one of the nation's largest banks, um, which assisted in the sale of professional practices. Um, I think that was Bank of America, if I remember. Is that is that right, Shannon? Yes, sir. That's correct. Yes, sir. I actually spent 15 years with B of A. Okay. So, uh, so today we're going to talk a little bit with Shannon about the SBA lending process, which um, stands for Small Business Administration, if you're not familiar with it. Um, so, Shannon, we'd like to start just by getting to know you a little better. Um, can sure. you tell us a little about yourself personally and um and also, I'm curious as to how you fell into this vertical. Yeah, wonderful, Brandon. Well, thank you. Um, so I live with my wife and daughter in Wilmington, North Carolina. It's actually the headquarters of Live Oak Bank. I was actually, when I was recruited, I moved from Columbus, Ohio, where I spent the majority of my life and career. Um, love being in the South. Um, it's, you know, obviously with the warm weather and the beaches, it's, it's uh, you know, I get the chance to work for a wonderful company and at the same time, be in a semi-retirement type community um, with beaches and just, you know, more activities outdoors than you can do in the winter and, and up north. Um, you know, getting into CPA lending, I actually, when I was with Bank of America, I actually, um, you know, I was selling distressed uh, dental, medical, um, and law practices that we had done loans for and, uh, you know, various reasons why they were distressed. It was, you know, I don't want to get into those kind of details, but it, you know, what it taught me was how to move a deal or a transaction through a process from, you know, listing it to finding a buyer, um, to finding, find, helping that buyer find, find financing for that transaction. Sometimes it was a cash transaction, but it really, um, helped me with deal flow. And I was always told, you know, that's sort of considered the, you know, collection side of the business. I was always, everyone always said, you know, you're way too nice to be on this side of the <laughs> side of the death. <laughs> and so, um, and everyone said, you, know, you should be in sales. You should really get into the lending side of the business. And, and that's where, you know, that's where you're developing, you know, sources and uh, customers and, and um, develop, developing deals on the front end. And so um, Bank of America created a, a, a conventional lending program that no longer exists for accounting and tax practices. And so I, I joined that group. Um, I was part of the launch of that group and went out in the industry and um, tried to gain loans. And it, it kind of accordioned a little bit, expanded really quickly and then contracted just as quickly. But I, so I stayed on, um, you know, after that contraction and um, actually did capital partner buy-in programs for E&Y and uh, Dixon Hughes, Goodman and um, Deloitte and a few other large top 25 firms, which um, just really exposed me to the industry. And, um, you know, allowed me to be, you know, engaged with the AICPA and, um, you know, various other um, top firms. So um, once I was exposed to the industry, I kind of fell in love with it. Just, um, you know, I just knew there was a niche that I wanted to be in. And so uh, a couple of years into that, uh, a lender in um, 
South Carolina actually called and said, you know, we want to launch an SBA lending program for accountants. And I thought, well, you know, great, what an opportunity. And, and so successfully launched that. And then um, in turn, a, a few years later, the nation's largest SBA lender, which is Live Oak Bank, called and said, hey, we want to do the same thing. And so it made sense to either kind of get on, you know, get with them and get on board or, um, you know, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to compete against them. So I figured I better join them. <laughs> so you can't beat them, join them. That's right. That's right. Uh, um, well, yeah, it's, it's nice to know that background and you've got that, that focus in this industry for quite a while. And, um, you know, from my perspective as a, as an intermediary, that's really helpful for, um, to work with a banker who understands these transactions. And um, we, you know, we try to um, have our buyers talk with an experienced lender just because that, that expertise is very helpful. Um, so I wanted to ask you, first question is, you know, when we're, as we're talking about buyers or, or borrowers, um, yeah. from, from your perspective, from the bank's perspective, what talents or experience and skills are ideal for you when you see a buyer? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, the, the, it really depends on the type of practice that they're purchasing. Um, you know, I think in a, in a larger practice with, a, you know, a multitude of different types of employees, it would be important to see somebody that has experience in managing people. Um, whether that's a you know tax manager or um, even if it's management that's outside of the accounting world, if they can, you know, if that individual can show some ability to manage people, because that's really the, the key element in a, you know operating a larger practice is is having that um, talent management capacity or capability. Yeah. Um, you know, but for a first-time buyer, if it's an individual-owned practice and um, and they're not going to be managing a large group of people, that that type of experience might not be as necessary. Um, you know, in a consulting or an audit type, or it's an individual kind of a loan, loan man operation, um, really comes down to the experience of the task at hand. So obviously, they're buying a tax practice. You would want somebody to have, you know, some sort of tax background or tax experience. The ability to do the work um, is a key element. Um, I, you know, that's what I would say just just ex experience in what you're looking at. It kind of right. has to make sense. Yeah. No, that all makes that all makes perfect sense. It's um. It's funny how sometimes people overlook those important things, though, and and um, I think that's natural as people kind of look at different opportunities. Um, you know, they're 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 sort of um, shooting darts in some way, and you have to kind of um, narrow the field. And we do that, and I'm sure you see that as well. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm sure, you want to drive a buyer towards something that's relative to what they're doing, right, or have sure. have done in the past. You want them to be successful. Yeah. Um, yeah. You want the deal to work, right? You want the deal to work. So, yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit, you, you know, you mentioned your experience with top 25 firms. So I imagine you've seen a few mergers in your day and I would love to know sort of if you're looking at a merger um, proposed transactions, just in terms of synergistic compatibility, um, you know, tell us a story about, um, a really successful merger where one where I think one plus one is more than two. Sure. Um, so actually they just, just recently in the last, uh, so it's probably a little hard to measure right now. Um, but I believe that, um, you know, they're, they're very successful, but I, 
did a transaction last year where um, a merger kind of already taken place prior to an acquisition. And so two CPAs um, were owning and operating their own small books of business independently. They decided to come together and joined an investment advisor um, who had a lot of experience in the in, in the locale, you know, where they were, you know, where they were located. And, um, uh, you know, that, that advisor brought obviously his advisory experience and those, those two CPAs brought their, you know, their accounting experience and they created an advisory group. Um, they had a pretty nice firm amongst the three of them, but, but they were also postured well for, you know, a merger, an acquisition of another CPA firm. And so, um, you know, in 2018, they bought, um, bought a, a very a very large practice quite honestly and had a great bottom line and you know what they were able to do is you know as you're seeing i think it's very much happening in the industry is um the mixture of services right where you're seeing investment advisory and accounting work kind of cross over and that advisory work kind of cross over and become you know sort of a one in one in the one in the same operation um because who better to you know, kind of give that analysis than something that's exposed already to your information. Um, yeah. So successfully, they're you know they're they're you know kind of skyrocketing just because they're able to offer additional services beyond just accounting. Right. Which seems to make a make a big you know big impact on the on the bottom line. Yeah, that's a great example. And you know, I've seen a few financial services firms try to buy a CPA and firm, and they didn't really have enough of the accounting experience to operate without the, the CPA. And so it kind of yeah. created some, I've seen some, I guess some power struggles for lack of a better term happens. Yeah. This is a really creative, great way to form a, a partnership or a, no, it's a great example. Thank you for that. Yeah. Of course. Of course. So when, when um, a lot of people who, are familiar with the SBA program, which is a a um, program where the Small Business Administration <clears throat> backs these loans. Um, mm-hmm. So there's government backing. Um, some people think of these as some somewhat bureaucratic and cumbersome. And I know Live Oak in particular has done a lot to sort of streamline that. And um, I wanted to get you to tell us a little bit more about, uh, first of all, what's cumbersome about the SBA program and how has um, Live Oak uh, solved that problem? Certainly. So uh, the thing about the um, SBA program is that any any bank really can offer an SBA loan. Um, they don't have to be pre-qualified or pre, you know, pre-trained or anything along those lines. Um, you know, and there's about there's about 4,000 SBA lenders nationwide total. So if you wow. looked at the directory of, of SBA lenders, you would you would see you would probably just you know who do you pick? You'd be almost be you know throwing a dart at a dartboard. Um, the one the one set apart um, that sets apart a portion of that group is the preferred lending um, program, which which is a designation that's given to certain lenders that allows them to underwrite and and make credit decisions on loans. Um, themselves internally so they've been they've presented to the sba the sba's agreed with their underwriting model and understands their capacity and capability to write these loans and so once that designation is given it takes away one part of the bureaucracy which is you no longer have to request the sba's permission to fund a loan in other words you don't have to send a full package into the sba you actually make the internal credit decision 
and then process it through your normal processing channels. My book's even a little more different um, or even a little more set apart is that we're very much a fintech type lending institution. We are an FDIC insured bank. However, we have one location, no branches. Um, we're located in Wilmington, North Carolina, have about 500 employees, um, you know, actually the nation's largest SBA lender by volume. And, and I believe that, um, you know, practice makes perfect. Kind of the more you do, the, the easier something becomes. It's just yeah. like anything in life. Uh, repetition creates efficiency. Um, but, but with that efficiency as well, we've tied a lot of technology to it. So we actually have an online portal application process where you can actually go online and apply for your loan, upload your necessary financial documentation. Very transparent process. You can you know, log into the portal at any time and see where you are in the loan request process, whether you're you know, in the underwriting process or whether you're in the closing process and you, and you kind of see the necessary documentation. We can actually chat live in the portal and talk with you about what you may have submitted or may not have or may need to submit. Um, I really feel like it's, you know, streamlined the process and, and kind of taken some of that, um, you know, cumbersomeness out of it. We yeah. still have to do all the regulatory documentation that any lender would have to do. It's just we try to make it easier by DocuSign and um, just automation, right? Right, kind of right. And I can I can tell you from experience when somebody's going through the loan process, they're also focusing on due diligence. They're focusing on logistics of taking over or merging a practice. So there's a lot of moving parts when you're doing a deal. So uh, yeah. it's very easy if you don't have something simple where you can at a glance see what's open. It's really easy yeah. to let stuff slide and slip, and those cause delays. And um, yeah. So, well, it's, you know, the initial list is always overwhelming to people. Um, right. they're, you know, it's, it's, you know, associated, you know, with just, it's just a great deal of, you know, considered to be someone thinking of a, a great deal of detail. Um, when you break it down, it's, it's really not that complex. Um, the hard part is, is, you know, with manual application, you kind of, you, you tend to not remember where you, what you gave and where you left off. And you're, you feel like you're constantly checking in to say, you know, okay, do you, don't you have everything? And, and we're more like, no, we don't have this, this, and this. And I'm like, oh, I thought I sent that to you. But with the portal application, it allows you to see in real time, you know, what's what's received, what's not, what you still need to do, and kind of follow a checklist, which I think brings a lot right. of ease to the process. And we try to, you know, with our clients, we try to prepare them. Like, look, this is, you know, it's a loan. You're asking for money. They're going to want information. It's required. You know, there's not... There's not a lot of yeah. it, it's required. Um, yeah, it's not a, it's not a negotiable, right? Yeah. Right. So um, so be prepared for that. It's you know it's mm -hmm. part of setting the expectation. But you know if if somebody is contemplating purchasing or or in the process of purchasing, what can yep. they do to be prepared before they ever even talk to you? Or um, you know what help what 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 do you like to see? Um, in terms of preparation to make the process sure. easier. Sure. Well, I think the one big thing in the, and this is kind of a, a, a giant tidbit of information, I think that could go a long way for your listeners is um, a great deal of the time accountants don't tend to um, document. Well, I don't say document, but uh, a lot of times they'll do a lot of side work. Like you'll do the taxes for your parents or maybe your uncle's business or um, your friend you went to you know college with you you might do his tax returns and, and there might be some trade or something that occurs for that. Uh, 
I encourage everyone out there that's listening, if you ever have any intent of acquiring a business, is to, you know, create a Schedule C and start claiming that income and start allocating that income and recognizing that income because what that turns into over a period of time, two to three years, is it actually becomes equity. The, the biggest hurdle I see that most buyers have in, in any acquisition, first-time acquisition or even, um, you know, even the latter is is the equity hurdle. Um, you know, down payment is the key element. So it limits your capacity or, or your runway um, when you're looking to purchase it. For example, if you, you know, if you only have 20,000 in savings or you only have 20,000 in equity, it limits your purchase to a $200,000 book of business. Where if you have, you know, keep, you know, keep doubling the math, whether it's 40 or 60 or 80, you're going to have that, you know, that, that same multiple in equity purchase power. And so saving, um, saving, and then and then you know compiling that that revenue is a key element. So. Right. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't understand that that equity. I mean, if you're building a little side business, it's a business that um, the bank looks very favorably on. It's for one, it's experience, yeah. and you've got That's right. That, you've got that income, so um, it yeah. actually. So if, if someone's got a $20,000 side business and they want to buy a small $200,000 practice, they actually can th count that towards 100% of their equity? Is that is that right? That, that's correct. Yeah, that's yeah. correct. As long as there's a, a historical value to it, right? So it couldn't be couldn't just be one year of reporting the income. You'd have to have a couple years to show some historical revenue. Right. Um, and a lot of times in that historical revenue, usually it's ticking upward, right? So... I, I usually just use the one-to-one -one rule. So if you, you know, if you've done, you know, you did sixty sixty thousand dollars in side business in two thousand and, you know, whatever last year, um, it gives you you can immediately utilize that as equity towards the purchase of another business. So we'll we'll try to quantify or qualify that as equity. That's perfect. Um, now, of course, we as a banker, we always want to see some some skin in the game or some cash to the table from sort of all parties involved. Um, so we, you know, we do like you to still bring some cash down payment. So that's why I encourage, you know, saving a little right. bit for that project as well. Right. So, um, yeah. let's talk a little bit about timeline. What is the typical timeline for an SBA loan process? If if everyone has pretty much everything in order. Yeah, I, you know, my our goal here internally is 45 days. Um, that's from start to finish is our 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 personal goals. Um, you know, to drive a transaction. However, I, you know, I attribute it and always say that it's like a tennis match. You know, I can hit you the ball and, and I have to wait for you to return it before we can play. Right. Um, so I can hit, I can hit you the list of needed items. And if it takes you two weeks to get me that list of items, then that's two weeks delayed in that 45 day process. But if we're, you know, if we're playing, you know, hard and fast and, you know, you're giving me information immediately, then I'm going to try to give you responses immediately and get questions back in front of you and, you know, keep the, you know, keep the game moving. Right. Um, so I would say the average is probably 60 days. Okay. Um, I've done I've I've done an SBA loan in as fast as 21 days. Right. So it, it you know just really depends on the parties involved, um, and then their you know kind of their conscious ability to to keep everything moving along. So. Right. And and there's sort of like I I think of the process as sort of two phases. You got you've got pre-commitment letter, and then you got post-commitment letter closing. Um, mm -hmm. So people. Uh, how long typically to get to a commitment letter if everything's going well? That way they know that they've got the financing. Um, sure. 
Sure. So again, I'll just defer to what our what our internal standards are, what we kind of hold ourselves to is once we have all the information, we want to give a, a proposal um, within 24 to 48 hours of receiving everything. Yeah. Um, our goal is to review it within a day or two and then have a proposal in front of you showing you what the terms and conditions of the loan would be. Um, again, that's just proposal, and then you would move into the underwriting process, and that underwriting process is generally a seven to ten day business process. Okay. So um, within within ten to fourteen days, business days, we want to have a definitive commitment, credit approval in front of you. Right. No, that's good. That that keeps the people from being in limbo too long. It's um very yeah. it's very speedy. That's good. Yeah. Um, Thanks. Well, they say you know time kills deals. So yeah. So yes. We want, to, we want to make sure we keep, you know, keep that engaged. Keep it moving. Um, yes, sir. So another thing that people don't realize is that the amount, the length of the financing, that there's 10-year financing available. And um, they also don't always know how much cash they need to bring to the table. Can you speak just on a high level um, about kind of those parameters of the loan programs you offer? Sure, sure. So the, the primary program that we utilize, um, which is designed for acquisition financing, is the SBA 7A program. Um, it is a 10-year term um, in, in an acquisition format, and um, the, you know, the, the greatest thing about the program, I believe, is there's no prepayment penalties, there's no principal reduction penalties. So you can take the 10-year term, and if you, you know, acquire the business, do a debt refinance, whatever, whatever your purpose might be for that, um, you can pay it back as quickly as as you'd like with no with no real penalty. You know, we do ask for a little bit of head heads up when a, you know when you are planning on paying off a loan, but there's a, but again there's there's no significant penalty for that. Um, so it gives a lot of flexibility from a cash flow perspective. Um, as far as um, you know, being again being prepared from a from an equity or or financial perspective, um, the SBA requires for a first time buyer. Um, that you must have 10% equity injection um, or 10% of total project costs. So a lot of times people think it's 10% of purchase price, but usually in most situations we want to give working capital in that transaction because we want to make sure that you you know get through the first 90 days of owning the business and be well capitalized, have the cash to pay you know pay the necessary bills and you know as you're waiting for billings and receivables to come in. Um, so it would be it would be purchase price plus working capital plus whatever loan closing costs are incurred. Um, so generally, um, you know, generally you're looking at, depending on the size of the deal, it's, it's probably another 10% additional on top of purchase price, maybe even 15 or 20. It would be added to the purchase price depending on the amount of working capital you take and then whatever costs might be tied to that particular loan, um, which can sometimes be a big hurdle for people. Right. The good news is that if you're if that's that's on an acquisition or what we can what we classify as an acquisition, if you're an existing firm or existing you know um, practice owner, you can utilize the equity in your existing business as equity towards the transaction. So, for example, like like we spoke about before, if you have a you know hundred thousand dollar book of business, that's equity towards a million dollar purchase, um, and would limit your your you would be able to limit your your need for cash and utilize the equity in your existing firm towards that. So. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Thanks. Um, yeah, of course. So um, kind of moving on to some more general questions. So what is one idea, observation, or insight you've had or learned from your work that you consider to be 
the major contributor to the success of your clients? Oh, it's kind of my, it moves me into a consulting role, but, um, which is, which is awesome because it's, it's one of my favorite parts about being specialized and being verticalized in, a, in an industry. Um, I honestly believe that um, disruption, um, major disruption in, in um, either key personalities or the face of the business, the front side of the business, has the greatest impact on um, really the success or the train because transition is really the key element, right? You're trying to trans transition could be a 20 or 30 year business owner, 40 year business owner. Um, you're trying to transition all those customers um, to, you know, the new, new person. And, um, you know, a lot of times you're inspired as a new business owner. You want to, you know, get your name up on lights and, um, you know, do things your way and really kind of, you know, take the bull by the horns and feel like you're, you know, managing the practice. When a lot of times those changes are something that customers aren't really ready for. Um, and then they, that gives them sort of the opportunity to, to make a decision to either stay or go based on those changes. So the one thing I can encourage most buyers is, you know, as little disruption as possible in the first maybe year, yeah. um, you know, is the thing that I've observed that's made transitions the most successful. And I, you know, I've been, I've heard it say, change as much of the back office as you want to, but change, you know, change as little and the front office as you possibly can to keep the customer experience similar to what it has been yeah. for the history yeah. of the firm. I agree with that. Um, you don't want to make a, a lot of changes and, um, ex you know, get in there, get a year under your belt and figure out, you know, you really want to understand these clients. You want to understand those staff before you change much. Um, yeah, I, I call it observe then react. You know, yes. you, you want to, you want to analyze, how it's been done and maybe try to fully understand why right. it's been done that way before you make a determination. You know, the big thing is it's like, you can't imagine, could you imagine a customer that's manually dropped off things for, you know, 20 years of owning his small business or his or her small business. And then all of a sudden, you know, the new guy comes in and says, you've got to scan and upload everything into the portal. I can't do it any other way. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's a disruptor to that customer. And they're like, I don't want to do it that way. Um, so then they, then they find an excuse to, Right. Down the road. Yeah, I agree with I agree with that. One thing that I will say that I've observed from my experience is people aren't always as price sensitive as you think they are, though. I have seen some yeah. very successful transitions where pricing was changed, but it was changed very thoughtfully and, mm -hmm. and still sl somewhat slowly. Um, yes. You know, on a test basis. Um, but you're right. If, if you're going to change the way people work. Um, yeah, that is, that's a biggest, that's a much bigger disruption than a price change. Um, yeah. I, I heard someone told me once that clients are not price sensitive, they're service sensitive. And I find that to be very yeah. true in the accounting industry. I agree. I agree. I agree. Um, wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly. Yeah. And, and you got to think about your own experiences, right? And when you've made major changes in any decisions you've had, whether, you know, personally, right, whether it was insurance or your own accountant or, um, you know, any other service offering, it's, it's whenever they, you know, make the disruption is when you kind of have that opportunity to kind of change yep. your mind and, and right. you know, let me, let me look for something else. Um, so. yeah. Um, but when it stays so, fluid you're not really, you're not really aware of it. So you, you just kind of go with the status quo. Right. Um, people kind of, people kind of work that way. That's how we, you know, how we like it. We like things, you know, the way they were, the way they are. 
creatures of habit. We're, we're humans. Yes, we are. So how did you discover that? Was that just a series of just small experiences or was there one big deal that happened where somebody tried to do that? How did you? Uh, A combination of, um, you know, being exposed to the industry and, um, you know, very being exposed to various um, practice consultants and as well, personal experience, uh, you know, in having transactions where a buyer has called you, you know, a year later and they say, it's just not what I thought it was going to be. Um, and you just, and you, you say, okay, well, what, what did you change? You ask them directly. Okay. What, what changed? What was different? And, well, you know, I, I put my name up, you know, I, I'm not saying don't put your name on the door, but you don't want to, you also don't want to make the history of what you're buying because you're buying goodwill, right? So you're buying the history of a business. You certainly don't want to just, you know, so, say that that's not worth anything or you know, that's really what you've paid for. And so honor that, value it, um, value the history of what you're, you know, what you've acquired. Yeah. Um, and I think if you cherish that, um, customers recognize that you, you do so and, and they tend to want to have the same loyalty. Right. Um, so as far as the, the accountant, accounting profession as a whole, I mean, there's a lot of change going on, especially with technology. Um, yes, got a new generation sort of taking the helm of practices now, the millennial generation. So yes, sir. What opportunities do you think that creates? What do you see as opportunities for the profession? Um, so, you know, I think um, it, it, it does change a little bit of the back, back house. So it might go a little bit against the opposite of what I just said. But, you know, I do believe that, you know, technology and automation, um, AI, um, bot accounting is really going to change the face of the industry in the next five to 10 years. Uh, it, 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 it's just going to, there's nothing we can do to really avoid it. Um, you see a lot of automation and just various apps that you're using on a daily basis as an individual. Um, the good news is, is that automation is never going to be, it, 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 it operates in a black and white world. And so we, as people have the ability to add the human touch to it and, and find, you know, I don't want to say find the gray, but, but, you know, kind of mitigate the gray. Right. Um, and, and that's where I believe as professionals, that's where we come in and as people, we come in and, and we, we become advisors, right? And so I really think, I really think that accounting has to change sort of the billing model. I believe that the billable hour is, is becoming um, in, in a lot of billable hour industry. You know, I look at law as another example of another industry that where the billable hour is really becoming um, a yesterday thing. And we really have to become more, of an advisory type service and um, have advisory, um, you, you know, programs and offerings to our customers that that bring value beyond the automation, and and then create a billing model that's based around that. That's you know that's that's value added or or yeah. you know a la carte based on services rather than based on the hour. Because if you're able to automate, you know, your bookkeeping, then then and you and, you're, you and your customer both know that it's automated. How are you going to how are you going to create a billable hour for that? And so I, I worry about that a little bit. Um, that I hope that you know that the industry can adapt and change with the, the technology and the automation. Yeah, and um, yeah, I think clients and even staff are going to start somewhat being the drivers of those changes. That's when that's when the profession will really switch over. Is when it just becomes the customer expectation and and also the yeah. staff. You know, if you want to attract and keep good people. Um, yeah. So, well, um, it's, you know, it's um, we have a very trustworthy um, culture here at, at Live Oak, um, and I think that you know, the time clock is 
become a kind of a thing of the past. So we're we're kind of always on, you know, when we when you love what you do and you're helping people, um, you know, you're not really punched a clock. You're you're offering a service and you're you, you are that service and um, it doesn't it's not driven by a nine to five schedule or eight to five schedule. It's yeah, you know, if a customer needs needs me at a particular time of day, I'm going to do everything I can to make myself available because I care about that customer. Yeah, yeah, the world is becoming much more results oriented, which yeah. Could free us up. I mean, I think if you right. get the results, if you can get the results and keep the customer happy with not with less time, then everybody wins, right? I mean, it's yeah, yeah, it's productivity, which is kind of what drives drives the economies, improvements in productivity. So that's right, uh, that's right. All right, books. Um, if you were to recommend one book to our listeners, what would that be? Uh, I was hoping to recommend more than one um <laughs> no so uh i would be amiss if i didn't um if i didn't recommend the accountant's flight plan i uh, ah. I, I just recently finished that one um a, a great book about uh practice management and talking about a lot of the a lot of the conversations we're having and a lot of the topics you discuss in there brandon so you know kudos to you a well thought out well written book well thank really you enjoyed enjoyed reading it uh, secondarily i'm actually reading another one um called the personal cfo by a guy named Kyle Walters. Um, he actually writes for Inside Accounting um, or Accounting Today. Uh, he, he's a contributor to the to the AICPA's content, and uh, he's a he's an, actually an investment advisor, but he's you know tied into the accounting world. And it, it comes it, it really is talking about some of the things that we've talked about is that um, you know we as people um, you know time is the most valuable thing we have. We we tend to think that it's money. Um, that is the most valuable thing, but really is time is the one thing that we cannot buy back. However, we can buy it in the moment. Um, yeah. You know, for example, if you, you know, I always use the analogy of kind of the time value of money is that, you know, if you make, you know, if you're billing, going, going to the billable hour factor, if you're making three or 400 or $500 an hour, um, you know, unless you enjoy mowing your grass, it really doesn't make sense to mow your grass, right? Um, if you can pay someone $50 an hour, and that's probably a lot, but, to, mo to do the same thing that you would do and you could turn that hour that you spent, you know, doing that, doing whatever that might be into another billable hour, um, you're going to buy time, right? You're buying an hour of time, basically, um, right. of your own time. And so, I, I, you know, he really just speaks to that. And I, I, I found that valuable in my own life because I, you know, I have to recognize being, you know, being busy and traveling everywhere and, um, you know, trying to, you know, be all things to all people that, you know, time is the most valuable thing I have. And if I can, divert some of that time that I, you know, I might you know, spend waxing my car or um, mowing my grass, then um, I should probably do that and right. give that back to my family and the people that matter. Right. Right. So. And, uh, yeah, and those people can do that stuff way faster than we can too. Right. They have the equipment. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. well, it's repetition, right? They're experts at it. It's like, yeah. I, you know, if I tried to, if I tried to detail my car, it would take me, you know, 12 hours where if I, you know, hire a guy, he's done in three and I'm like, it doesn't, and it looks better than what it took me 12 right. hours to do. Right. So, it's, yeah. So, which is, um, you know, it's funny cause accountants see that, you know, when they, when they pick up someone's tax return, someone's trying to do it themselves. They go, oh, gosh, why do they do this themselves? But yeah, sometimes <laughs> we don't, we do that in our own lives and we don't recognize it sometimes. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about just a uh, life lesson. So what's one uh, bit of advice or guidance or life lesson would you like to share with our listeners? Oh my goodness. So um, I don't know if it's a personal uh, 
if I created it personally or discovered it somehow through my career. But I, you know, I, I hear all the time a lot of people say that, um, you know, you should diversify and learn many things, right? Become, um, you know, try to have knowledge in, in all all things. Um, you know, it's kind of the YouTube generation thing, right? You know, we, you go out and learn about you can learn about anything, right? And become become somewhat of a not an expert, but obviously gain knowledge on whatever subject that might be. And I, I'm actually I'm kind of the opposite of that. I believe that um, verticalization um, or siloing yourself as an expert in a particular industry um, is really it can be a key element to setting yourself apart from others and make you successful, right? So if I look at it from an accounting practice perspective, you know you see a lot of this in the industry where there's specialized accountants designed only for that specific industry, right? A lot of niche accounting going on. Yeah. So it might be an accountant that might specialize in veterinarians or uh, dentists or uh, restaurants. Um, you know, similar to you, Brandon, you, you know, you could easily be a business broker or business intermediary of, you know, of all businesses. And, and certainly you're qualified, you know, to do that. Um, and, and I could be a lender. Uh, I could be a banker of, of all things considered. However, because we are, we're niched, right, and we're verticalized, it allows us to have knowledge beyond general, you know, generalities, right? Yeah. So, um, and with that, it, it allows you to speak directly to the person in their own individual um, career or, like, you know, livelihood um, and, and really sets you apart from other individuals. Yeah. Uh, I, I really, you know, that's kind of my... Don't be a jack of all trades, right? Everybody's that. Right? Yeah. But be a be an expert. Be an expert at something. Be a, be a master of one. Yeah. Right? Rather than being a master of none. Yeah, I totally agree. And actually, um, kind of reminds me of the Adam Smith. You know, the Scottish philosopher. I think, gosh, like hundreds of years ago, figured out that specialization was the key to productivity. And yeah. um, he has this example of this pen factory. It's in Wealth of Nations, and um, you know, it's like, how many people does it take to make a few pins, you know, like stick pins, uh -huh. but you get a handful of people and equipment and they can make, you know, thousands an hour. And, yeah. um, so it's, uh, just a real basic, that's a great one. Um, yeah, well it just, you know, it leads to uh, just, you know, put yourself in the customer's shoes. If you're a small business owner and you only do that one thing, right. And you're an expert at that. Wouldn't you expect or, or isn't it fair to expect or wouldn't you want to work with people that have expertise alike, like you or in, in your, you know, that can give real time advice about what's occurring in your industry that can truly impact and, and, you know, yeah. um, make a difference. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I have another example. We're going to beat this horse until it's dead, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. I love but, you know, it. I love it. You're on the same you know, if you go to the doctor and let's say you have a heart condition, you want to go to somebody who sees a lot of patients about that condition, you know, that, that really yeah. knows that particular organ in your body. Um, yeah. So, um, all right. Well, and he, and, he, and he sees one, you know, he see how many heart, he only sees hearts every day. Right? Yeah. So, you know, he's not working on a big toe one day and then, you know, a heart the next. Exactly. And, you know, it, it just, yeah, it's definitely. It, that's where I'd want my that's where I'd want my heart to be. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. um, well, Shanna, this has been this has been great. So tell people how they can uh, follow and connect with you. Um, 
Wonderful. Well, I'm on LinkedIn, of course. Um, big believer in, in LinkedIn. I uh, spend a lot of time there. Um, I'm also on Twitter at uh, Shannon Hay L O B or at Shannon Hay L O B. Reach me by email at shannon.hay at liveoak.bank. And then um, my number is uh, never changing. It's going to be uh, 614-648-9199. Um, also encourage people to visit the website. We have a lot of great material there. It's um, liveoakbank.com. And if you go under the uh, loans tab and then go under accounting and tax vertical, we actually have a lot of great information we'd love to share with people. So Awesome. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for your time and your insights. This was a fun conversation, and I'm sure our listeners will get great value from this. So thank you very much. Thank you, Brandon. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thanks for listening to the Accountant's Flight Plan Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please follow us so that you can get updates when new episodes are released and share our podcast with your friends and colleagues. You can also follow Poe Group Advisors on social media. Please visit our website for more information at pogroupadvisors.com.